Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome, Alistair. Thanks a lot, Alex. Great to be here again. Good to, good to, good to see you again. And um, shall I kick off with just some, some opening thoughts? Yeah, that's a great idea. It's a, it's a strange week again, isn't it? Uh, it is. It is. It's a, already for weeks. It it feels for me like this this planet is moving faster than normal. It's it's just hard to keep track of the news. And and when you do manage to absorb the main news, which is so much, then you actually regret that you saw it. It's 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 uh, it's, it's horrible. It's depressing. And and international law is ignored. And and we saw. You know the, the grabbing of a neighboring democratic country in a way that is that is similar to the warfare of the the days of Genghis Khan. We 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 hadn't seen this in in at least not since the Second World War. Uh, just an invasion of another country like we used to do in the Middle Ages when you felt like it. And the 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 portrayal of this democratically elected government in Ukraine in, in Russian state media is, is, you know, that's, that's, that's a joke. And, and the awful truth is that, um, yeah, it's, it's so horrible that you can't call it a joke, but of course this podcast is about the environment. It's, it's, it's about our planet and, and that's why we call it the planet and the news podcast about the planet. But I must admit that I find it very hard to, to keep writing and talking about environmental issues while civilians are barbarically being blown to pieces. Children sheltering in the theater where there's clear signs on both sides, a huge letter saying that children are hiding there is just being bombed. This is this is barbaric. This is horrible. And this is the stuff of history books of long, long time past history that I used to be reading about. I had not thought that in my lifetime I would see such a thing. And it, it, it seems that we just haven't learned a thing since the darkest days of, of the Second World War. And then in, in this folk podcast, our, our task is to continue to focus on the environment and not because talking about nature is like a lighter, easier issue to talk about or that is more digestible, but it's because we are dealing now with multiple existential crises and taking care of the environment and nature is not some kind of luxury. It is not the same as doing maintenance work in Disneyland because people will visit nature or Disneyland and enjoy themselves. It is because we are part of nature. We can't live without nature. And if we don't urgently take care that we keep climate change under control, we just risk being marooned with all close to 8 billion of us on a very lonely and very hot planet and there's nowhere else to go. There is no planet B. So we we need to maintain biodiversity because it is a prerequisite to living a normal life on this planet and we need to take care of climate change because otherwise we just get awfully hot here and millions of lives will be lost. And we need to take care of global food security because if we don't, millions of people won't have enough to eat. Already millions of people won't have enough to eat. It will get worse. So we need to focus on water because we simply can't live without clean, fresh water that we need for, for any function in life. And we'll come back to that on World Water Day, which is just, what is it, five days away from us. And since we can't focus in our podcast on all crises in the world, we will focus on these planetary challenges. And that's already enough of, of our hands full. But but there's another reason that I that I want to mention in these sad opening chapters of the third decade of the 21st century, that the war in Ukraine is closely connected to all of these planetary challenges that I'm just mentioning. All these problems have been created by bad governance. And each of these problems leads to other problem, problems. It ignites other problems. I focused in my career on the impact of climate change on security. And I always try not to talk too much about it because I've, I've worked on it for, for decades. But it's also the other way around. The war in Ukraine takes away the focus of the world's leaders on climate change right at a time when there is simply no time to lose. Future historians will have a very difficult task explaining to their readers what was happening 
in in this period in the history of mankind, and they will not judge mildly on this senseless war and the further delay that it has caused on taking effective climate action. That will be one of their arguments. So while the focus is now, and rightly so, on these barbaric actions that are taking place, this this absolute waste of, of, of lives of people, I'm sure that from a longer time perspective, if people will write about this time in, in let's say, a century from now, if there are still people around and nobody chose the nuclear option in these days, um, then I'm I'm sure that they will say the war that then took place, that they won't spend too much time on, came at a horrible moment because it, it, it blocked further action on climate change because everybody was busy with something else. So today we have lots of issues for our podcast. This was only one of them, but but yeah, uh, sorry for the long ramble to start with. What, what are your thoughts, Alistair? Yeah, that was a great introduction, Alex. And of course, you know, war is never good for the environment. This was meant to be the decade when we're cutting emissions in half from 2020, 2010 levels to get on track for the goals of the Paris Agreement to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. And, you know, we... <laughs> We've had a pandemic followed by a war. A um, hundred years ago, we had a war followed by a pandemic and um, none of this is good for anybody. Um, this is a dark shadow cast over global cooperation around the world on the environment. And, you know, you're right. The world's leaders have got something else on their mind these days, but there are, that's a glimmer of a silver lining if we, if we look at it through climate change in some ways. It's, it's forced... It's forced the EU countries together to rethink not only their dependence on Russian fossil fuels, but also their dependence on all fossil fuels. And America's also banned imports of Russian um, oil and gas. Um, so there's, 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 if, if, if we stick to the course, if the European Union gets its act together, there is a renewed call, at least, for a super-fast transition to renewable energies. There was a, a, a new analysis by the Brussels-based think tank Bruegel, I think I'm translating that right. For some uh, we would say Bruegel in Dutch. <laughs> yeah. Practice that one. Seen by Bloomberg, it suggested that halting Russian oil and coal imports would cause a short and painful transition for the European Union. But with the help of its international partners, the bloc could end its dependence on Moscow. So this research suggests that EU government should start planning to reduce demand to ensure the smooth transition to an economy without Russian oil that they're planning to do by, they're planning to break their dependence on Russian oil this decade and to cut it by, what was it, two-thirds by the end of this year, cut it sharply by the end of this year. In addition, this research suggests that Europe should forge a transatlantic energy pact with US President Joe Biden to tap spare US capacity to compensate for the lost Russian volumes, Bloomberg writes. It says that a joint diplomatic outreach to OPEC producers could also help navigate through the stormy period after Russian flows are halted. So, you know, you've, you've got to pick and choose your, your suppliers. Um, you know, uh, we've, we've been used to the idea that we need to break the independence on the Middle East, on OPEC, on Saudi Arabia, um, on Venezuela. But now these suddenly seem like the nice guys. Um, one of the one of the researchers yeah. said that Europe can live without Russian oil and coal supplies, but significant logistical problems will have to be tackled to lessen the impacts of such a scenario. We've also seen in Politico um, that EU unity has been impressive in slapping four rounds of sanctions on on Russia, but that moving to the next stage will prove harder and expose some of the old diplomatic fault lines. Germany, of course, is highly wary of Polish and Baltic excitations to go for Russian Vlad President Vladimir Putin's jugular and to sever the all-important energy income that helps fuel his war in Ukraine. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cynical picture. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a cynical picture that suddenly those countries that we rightly are not uh, too happy about, countries uh, like, uh, like Venezuela and Iran and um, uh, nor, by the way, do we share um, a, a lot of the same uh, moral values and international law perspectives as as quite a few other OPEC members. And suddenly, we have to 
to become friends with them again to uh, to to secure uh, our supply of, of fossil fuels. But the hope is indeed that although for the short term we need extra fossil fuels to get through this period, and we need also to have the import capacity. So if let's say when we get uh, gas from the U.S., we need uh, the uh, extra uh, facilities to to be able to unload that and to transport it into into our gas network and there's a lot of grid issues as well associated to it but this massive turnaround that we are going to do now temporarily with more fossil fuels but but hopefully as soon as possible with a massive investment in into renewables is a fast push away from fossil fuels and towards renewables and of course the old industry, uh, which which uh, is so powerful that earns its money with po- fossil fuels, will do everything they can to to prolong the period that will need uh, we will need fossil fuels. So, policymakers will have to be really really strong in their determination to uh, to move it towards um, uh, towards more renewables. But I'm impressed, by the way, by the by the speed that uh, that EU is 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 finding in this transition, I I hope that we can really make it. I I thought it was uh, quite uh, quite quite fast and optimistic. And if I remember correctly, it's in five years' time that we should be completely independent of Russian gas. If I'm correct, I'm not I'm not really sure what the what the numbers were, but I thought they were they were really good. And then there's of course uh, apart from 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 the fossil fuels, there's of course the impact on food. I uh, mm. I, I wrote and spoke about it several times. But if if you look at the the current food problems we already have in the world after the pandemic, uh, it, it there were there's already 160 million extra people. Uh, that are now suffering from from hunger than we had before the pandemic, and the pandemic is far from over. Maybe it has slipped a bit away from our attention, partly uh, because of the relaxation of all kinds of COVID measures, and and partly because of all the attention that now goes to Ukraine. But the pandemic is not gone. Um, we shouldn't be alarmed by it uh, in the Western countries as long as you're double vaccinated and boosted. Uh, but with this this sub variant on 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 Omicron that is um, doesn't make you more ill, but it is more um, uh, more more uh, contagious. Um, it 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 is still around, and if you look in a place like Hong Kong at the moment and other places in Southeast Asia, it will still have a huge impact on uh, on the economy, on uh, people in the world, and also on food security. And that last week, um, there there was uh, Gabriel Ferrero de Loma Osario, the, who's, the, who's the head of the Committee on, on World Food Security. So that's a, it's a kind of subcommittee of the United Nations. He warned that this uh, invasion of Ukraine is going to impact heavily the prices of food worldwide and and Russia and Ukraine combine for for about a third of the world's wheat and barley exports and Ukraine is also a major supplier of corn and and sunflower oil um, that's that's used in all kinds of uh, food processing and if you compare it to just before the invasion the wheat prices are now more than than 50% higher and and likely still rising and wheat is the the staple food of the Middle East. We saw in, in 2011 what happened when uh, in 2010 the harvest had failed in, in Ukraine and Russia and in Kazakhstan. And what all what all those countries did, they said, we need the little wheat we have left, we need it for ourselves. So they just closed the borders for the export of wheat. And then what happened was that far away, so it was actually, it was a, a caused by climate change that this harvest harvest failed, uh, most likely the, the chances that the harvest failed in those countries in 2010 was three times as much as normal because of climate change. Um, so it was climate change far away from the Middle East that was the trigger for what we then called optimistically the Arab Spring in in, in the in the first months of, um, of uh, 2011 uh, with this, this enormous amount of uprising. So I I think there is uh, a likelihood 
that we will see in the next 12 months or so more uprisings in the world because the food prices are getting higher. There's a a well-established relationship between food prices and riots. Um, You cannot say that it's only the food price that causes a riot because food prices are also going up in New York and I haven't heard of any riots there. But generally, worldwide, if all the food prices go up, if the world food price index goes through the level of 200, you will see an an an, an increase in, uh, in in unrest in the world. And so, if if we keep on on this connection uh, between, um, we will do questions. By the way, at the end of this uh, this talk. Uh, because I see Joshua raising his finger. Um, but um, if, if, staying on this connection, agricultural activity around the world is uh, also a major contributor uh, to, to global warming. So it's not only that global warming is making agricultural activity and food production more difficult, so is war, but it's also the other way around. Um, so this works two ways. Typically an example of these this stacking up, this... this uh, uh, this, this uh, strengthening by the one crisis of the, or worsening, I should say, by the one crisis of the other crisis, these compounded risks. So um, we see that relationship um, and uh, the agricultural activity is also the world's leading driver of biodiversity loss. So more food production leads to more biodiversity loss. And then there is um, agricultural activity. Again, food production is the largest source of water pollution in the world. Uh, And agricultural activity is also the biggest single user of fresh water. So there you have it. So you have a a relationship back and forth between uh, conflicts, between food production, uh, between biodiversity loss, and with uh, water problems in the world, uh, both in quality as well as, as quantity. And all of this you can just put in one big diagram where all of these are impacting each other. And it is so we, we in by mid-century, we will have 10 billion people on this planet that we will have to feed and provide all kinds of goods in a sustainable way and we we simply can't do that with the current production systems and by the by the current uh, food pattern uh, that we are we are eating and this in itself without the slaughtering of innocent people that is taking place now at a massive scale in Ukraine is already a challenge that we should put all our brilliant minds and our our most brilliant leaders on to, to solve this. So we have a lot on our hands. I'm talking too long. Alistair, back to you. No, indeed. That's, that's great. It's, it's, of course, a cruel irony, isn't it? That, um, you know, the, the, the way that countries are trying to reduce or cut their dependence on Russian oil and gas and Russia, indeed, in general, is pushing up the prices of all these commodities that Russia is a major exporter of. You know, the price of oil has, has gone through the roof above $100. Now, the price of all these agricultural commodities that Russia is the huge exporter of are also surging. So even though they may be losing export markets, they're still making a lot of money, a lot of hard currency out of the out of these things. And yeah. it's being exacerbated, as you say, the whole the whole interlinkage between conflict and drought and climate change and biodiversity loss is 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 such a such a huge emerging field, isn't it? That's, have been there was a contra it became controversial because a lot of people disagree with it but the one there was one study that suggested that the drought in Syria had contributed to the civil war there the outbreak of the civil war there um, you know it's it's these sort of connections are going to be made I think ever more aren't they um, the food and agricultural organization of the United Nations put out a note the other day about the importance of Ukraine and, and Russia and, and global food supplies. And they have some remarkable graphs in that report. You know, for, for sunflower seeds, Russia and Ukraine each produce, together rather, produce more than 50% um, of the world's production. 50%, um, you know, more than 50% from those, about 25% each of them, you know. The sunflower is the symbol of Ukraine, the, the yellow in the, in the flag. Um, 
um, and and barley, wheat, as you say, maize, rapeseed, rapeseeds, huge, huge production of those things comes from both of these countries. You know, they are leading suppliers in the global markets here. So untangling our food supplies from um, Russia while helping Ukraine at a time when nobody's out, nobody's going to be able to plant the crops or even harvest the winter crops. Um, if things go on like this, there's going to be, there could be extraordinary shortfalls in, in, glow, in Ukrainian production, perhaps even in Russian production, um, you know, um, because, you know, in 2021, according to the FAO, either Russia or Ukraine or both ranked among the top three global exporters of wheat, maize, rapeseed, sunflower seeds and sunflower oil. You know, the, the, Russia was the, the world's top exporter of nitrogen fertilizers. Um, so these, they, they are sort of the cornerstones of, of agriculture in a way. And of course, you know, as, this, this, as climate change affects production around the world, um, we want to have sustainable and decent supplies of all of these commodities. And we're, you know, getting rid of dependence on Russia um, in food markets may be just as difficult as breaking our dependence on, on the energy markets too. Yeah, and it's it's also when you think about now about the war in Ukraine, you think of course about the Ukrainians, uh, but but in the long term, people living in completely different parts of the planet will be will be heavily impacted by by this this mad senseless war. Uh, people will 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 get hunger hungry and they will they'll they'll be unhappy and and uh, and the stability of the countries will be at risk. Um, just because of, of of this food connection, and yeah, personally, I I think it, it it's a crazy idea that we are still buying goods from from Russia, and and every dollar that you send to Russia is of course spent on on this war. So it's 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 a crazy situation how the economies are are interlinked. So in Ukraine, this this uh, recent escalation of conflict has already led to, to port closures uh, and then. Um, uh, the suspension of, of oil seed uh, crushing operations and also the, the introduction of export licensing requirements for some crops and, and all of which uh, can take a, call, a toll on, on, on the country's exports of grain and vegetable oils uh, in, in the months ahead. And it's also uncertain whether Ukraine will be able to harvest uh, its crops uh, during a uh, protected conflict. And, and I guess in some reasons, that in, in some regions, that will definitely not be possible. And, and hopefully in the, towards the West, maybe a bit more, but that's, that's far too soon to say if, the, if that's pos possible uh, and if they're still able to export it even um, because this conflict can go any direction now it's it's uh, very very difficult to say anything even the best experts don't know but a lot of uncertainty also surrounds uh, the the russian exports um uh, and so all the difficulties that may arise as a result of economic sanctions that are that are now imposed of on the country so very difficult to say anything about uh, where all this will go but a lot of reason to be concerned for more generally um, apprehensions also exist uh, regarding uh, in increasing insurance premia for vessels destined to be birthed in, in, in the Black Sea region uh, as, as these could exacerbate the, the already elevated cost of maritime transportation, uh, compounding further on, on the final cost of, of internationally sourced uh, food paid by importers. And you can, for instance, think about, you know, war could, could break out in, on the waterfront as well in, in the in the Krim and Odessa region but you can also think of will um will the Bosporus uh, stay open um there there that that is uh, as an insurance company I can imagine you say well we a year ago we were 100% certain that you could sail through the Bosporus but now I'm not so sure if a ship goes in now if it can still go out in a while so um and uh yeah and then there's countries like somalia and and yemen and countries that are far away from this region where where people are are impacted now so um yeah so so what else do we have alistair yeah well i was just thinking about um the last time i went to well i used to work at reuters as the environment correspondent there and um 
I went to a, a conference in Moscow in 2003 when uh, Vladimir Putin um, was musing, joking almost, that warmer temperatures might mean that Russians spend less on fur coats. I remember you know, that. A famous, yeah. a famous conference he was at. And he also said that, you know, agricultural specialists say our grain production will increase, and thank God for that. You know, Putin's never been a big fan of climate action. Um, he didn't go to COP26, the big conference in Glasgow last year in Scotland. Um, President Xi of China was among other absentees when pretty much every other major leader turned up. You know, back in 2003, you know, Putin was also a, a key player in the, the adoption of the Kyoto Protocol, the 1997 agreement that um, obliged um, uh, industrialized nations to cut their emissions uh, um, in, in a first period lasting to 2012. You know, the thing had been pretty much torpedoed by George W. Bush, who announced that the United States would not be taking part, even though it had been signed, negotiated by the uh, Clinton administration. Um, and so let, that left it hanging in the balance um, because it needed to have the backing of enough big nations to formally enter into force, which meant that Putin effectively had the casting vote. Back in 2003, when he was talking about fur coats, it sounded like the whole project was dead. But he changed his mind. But he changed his mind pretty much because um, uh, Russia wanted to become into the World Trade Organization. So it was kind of a throw, throw Russia the bone of the, um, of the, uh, the World Trade Organization membership, WTO membership. And in return, they signed up for the Kyoto Protocol, which saved it, salvaged it. So, you know, yeah, great, great one, Russia. But um, Russia's, Russia's, you know, emissions crashed after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they're still well, well below the, the levels of Russia in, um, in 1990. So not much has changed. Yeah, that, that is amazing. And it's, uh, those were also the days that Russia was still part of the, of the G8, as we called it in those days. So it's, uh, I think somewhere around 2013, there will be a kind of cutoff. There's a kind of Putin before 2013 and, and Putin after that. I mean, you see it in, in, in the economic results and you also see it in, in his behavior. Kiev was, uh, was a year later, uh, for instance. And, uh, yeah, so, so he, uh, his remark about those fur coats didn't only show an enormous amount of ignorance, uh, not uh, not much different than a guy like Inhofe from Oklahoma walking into the Senate floor with a snowball to prove <laughs> that, that uh, climate change was a hoax. Um, or, uh, for that matter, a guy like Morrison in, in, in Australia walking into the Senate floor or wherever he was with a lump of coal in his hand which he thought was so beautiful. It is completely ignorance. And, and he, Putin is not very wise to ignore the massive risks of climate change within Russia itself. And there's, there's a, a very worrying effect in, in Russia where rising temperatures in Siberia are thawing the permafrost. And they are approaching a tipping point that could release massive amounts of, 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 of carbon and including methane uh, to the atmosphere and the soiling permafrost is a huge problem for Russia and, and other northern regions like like here in Canada and in Alaska and in the Nordic region because it, it destabilizes roads and, and buildings and, and pipelines and, and it, it brings massive costs. You see uh, the, the, the coastline uh, eroding away, uh, houses falling off the cliffs, etc., and a, a study this week in, in the journal uh, Nature Climate Change says that there is an imminent loss of climate space for uh, permafrost peatlands in Europe and Western Siberia. And peat is decayed plant matter that forms in bogs and moors and, and it stores vast amounts of, of carbon. And if you wait long enough, so like hundreds of millions of years, uh, that, that ultimately becomes coal and, 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 and oil. Uh, but in a much shorter period, uh, when uh, when 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 you have peatlands, it can release enormous amounts of carbon. So if you if you take just a normal 
let's say, marshes, and you take a stick and you stick it in, you, you see the methane gas coming out of it with, with your eyes. So the scientists in this study, uh, led by, by the University of Leeds in England, they said that under a moderate to high warming, the total peatland area affected contains up to 39 billion tons of carbon. So that is something like twice the amount of carbon that is, is stored in all European forests. And that is, that is massive. Yeah, these stories from the, the melting permafrost up in the, up in Siberia and across the, the northern hemisphere there are high in the north hemisphere are, are among the most worrying sort of climate stories we, 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 we have, aren't they? And here they, you know, they, they, these authors reckon that northern Europe and western Siberia will be climatically unsuitable for this peatland permafrost by 2040. You know, um, we could limit some of the damage with deep cuts in um, in, in global uh, warming emissions. Um, but you know that it's true, I suppose, that Russia will benefit in some ways from warming temperatures. You know, there are going to be the growing seasons in the south will be longer. But it's a bit like here in, I live in Norway, where we're at 60 degrees north. Um, and uh, there is some wheat produced around this this in southern parts of Norway, but it's at the, pretty much at the limit of how far north you can grow it. And yeah, it's getting warmer and the, 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 it's becoming a bit better for producing wheat. But, you know, the, the, the warming doesn't affect the fact that the sun gets up at, at three o'clock in the afternoon rather goes down at three o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of the winter and doesn't get up till after nine so no matter how much warmer it gets you've still got the problem of just the latitude limits how much warmth you're going to get from the sun at these latitudes so you can't you can't solve everything by by warmer by hoping that your crops are going to go farther north and there are other these other threats like insect pests traveling further north that destroy forests and that don't get killed off. The beetles don't get killed off because uh, it's not cold enough in the winter. Um, and the methane being released from the permafrost, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe you know, maybe we're underestimating Putin. Maybe he, he realizes all of this and actually, you know, seizing Ukraine as a way of ensuring food production for Russia. I don't think he's thought of that, but uh, yeah. But if you completely destroy a country, it doesn't produce much food for you. So it's uh, it's it's a bit of a middle age concept of uh, of of securing your food supply. Um, and yes, underestimating, I guess we all did, but not in a very positive way. And um, it, it's funny what you say about this this growing of 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 wheat in Norway, because what I learned in in Sweden, which is the the country of knäckebröd and all kinds of different toast, etc. <laughs> is that a reason that you have all these different tastes is apart from a cultural thing is that in some regions, because there is not enough sunlight, they, they don't, the wheat doesn't ripen in the way that it, it does in the rest of the world. So it gives a different uh, taste uh, to all the toast. So that, that's one of the reasons why, why Sweden is this knackerbird uh, country. And uh, yeah, and I remember also what you say about these these uh, beetles that are in trees, etc. These insects that are not killed off in the winter because the winters are too warm. And I've I've seen that in the American West, you see massive die off of of trees, in uh, and and that's that's really sad because they, they these beetles. It's not only that they these pine bark beetles. It's not only that they um, survive the winter, but it's also that they have a double um uh what do you say a, a, a process to um to to lay eggs and produce new beetles they can do do now twice in the summer instead of only once so it works two ways and and that's probably working same way with all kinds of other insects and, and pests uh, that are uh, coming up north which is also something that's mentioned in in the latest ipcc uh, report um so yeah so so uh, moving to energy, we we see new signs of of tension over energy prices. So, so will government seize this opportunity now to shift to new green energy like solar and wind to help to limit global warming, or will they just rush to develop more fossil fuels at home? Because if you have more fossil fuels, the price will also go down. There's like two different ways. Uh, that you can help people here, and of course, the more long-term and more sustainable one is to uh, to go for for renewables. And in America, you already see this battle about who's to blame for the high 
gasoline prices because on top of all these crises that we already had, there was also this inflation crisis, which is maybe compared to the severity of the other crisis, uh, not 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 a real crisis, but we had the highest infla- inflation rates in decades already just before the invasion of Ukraine. And one of the ways that an average American or the way that an average American uh, notices inflation is uh, the gasoline. Not only are they addicted to their cars, but it's also that wherever you drive, and the same here in Canada, the only thing that you pass on the highway is these huge signs saying how much gasoline is. So people are constantly reminded by the fact that gasoline is so uh, expensive. And um, yeah, so so Biden banned the imports of oil and gas from Russia last week. And then he also warned in that speech that uh, the crisis uh, would push up the cost at home too. So when I first spoke to this, uh, he said, I, I said defending freedom is going to cost. It's going to cost us as well in the United States. That's what Biden said in his speech last week. And he had bipartisan support which is a rare thing for uh, for for any democrat these days or well, any republican as well thinking about the trump days so he had bipartisan support for the ban on oil and gas imports but we're not seeing a lot of bipartisan support for higher gasoline prices at the pump which is of course a consequence of this on top of the inflation that's already taking place so some republicans are blaming joe biden now for record prices and um, yeah, so there was also um, uh, uh, this this uh, um, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the, the the leader of of uh, of the Republicans. I'm not sure if you uh, if you still have that quote. We spoke about it earlier, um, but uh, yeah. So yeah, was, these are not Putin's gas prices. These are Biden's gas prices. Oh yeah, the, that um, was it. For, yeah, for, yeah. For Tony, but I haven't got the exact here i'm afraid yeah um, but it's typically something that he could say so yeah so they do support uh the ban on 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 imports from russia but when the price then gets higher it's suddenly joe biden's fault yeah it's interesting yeah. Mm. it's um yeah it's a that that tweet led to led to outrage um he said these are not putin gas prices they are president biden gas prices yeah you know paul krugman who's a nobel prize winning economist wrote in the new york times that it was cynical and transparently dishonest but you know it's just the latest in a string of mccarthy comments in the run-up to the november midterm elections making out that biden's really behind all of this you know he's been tweeting for a while about this you know gas prices have risen nearly every single month of joe biden's presidency and he said, McCarthy said today, it's Russia's fault. Before that was OPEC's fault. Before that was because of the virus. So, you know, um, it's become a, a battleground there about gasoline prices. Um, and just, I don't know, it's a sad hallmark of American policies, politics, and in, in Europe as well, to, in some cases, especially in Britain, that, you know, um, making every issue into a partisan issue is a hallmark. Um, stoked by uh, former president donald trump from wearing masks to slow the spread of covid to the acceptance of the science of global warming we're, we're struggling to get through yeah and it's it's incredible how it it seems that especially republican politicians in america how they seem to completely ignore um what their job is which is to take care of of the people that they are representing so it seems like wearing masks uh, or not getting a vaccination. I'm pretty sure that, that practically all of these Republicans in Washington, D.C., uh, they've been vaccinated and boosted, and, and they are perfectly safe. And then telling the people not to is just incredibly irresponsible and is, is literally killing people. So I, 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 I get sick of American politics. Anybody that follows me on Twitter knows pretty well where I'm, where, where I am on that spectrum. And, um, yeah, and then, then on the other side of the Atlantic, we're, we're seeing economies struggling to ad- adapt uh, to the EU goals of, of cutting dependence on, on the import of Russian oil and gas. I mean, the, the, the billions of dollars that the EU pays to Russia is financing this war. And that is, that is a very, very difficult 
realization. The EU this month set the goal of reducing EU demand for Russian gas by two-thirds by the end of 2022, which I think is extremely ambitious uh, to choke off uh, the cash to, to the Kremlin. And I really hope that 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 this will work. But I, I personally, I wonder why. So some of the starkest warnings of acting too fast uh, to shift from Russia energy have been in Germany, which is heavily dependent on imports from Russia. Uh, it's 56% of the national gas the last time I, I checked. And that heats their homes and it, it runs their industry and they are extremely dependent on this. So the economic and the energy minister who's from, from the Green Left Party or the Green Party, as they call it in Germany, Robert Habeck, he told the public broadcaster ARD uh, on Sunday, and this is, this is one of the, the main uh, broadcasters in Germany, that if we flip a switch immediately, there'll be supply shortages even uh, supply stops in in Germany. And yes, rightly so, if it's 56% dependence, which of course Germany should never have allowed themselves to be in for such a long time because we knew that Russia was not a, a democracy. We didn't know that they were going to invade a, a, an, an independent and democratic country. Uh, but this this dependency has, of course, for a long time been a very strange thing while there were already alternatives in the forms of, of renewable energy. So Habeck said that uh, a halt to Russian oil and gas would mean mass unemployment, poverty, and people can't heat their homes, uh, and people who run out of petrol, uh, which for me would be saying that is the point where you just need to move to a kind of wartime economy and just be really tough on the people and uh, and and really make sure that this is guided in a way that everybody bears a little bit of the pain but that you can you can you can still achieve the aims of your country but i don't think that anybody in, in western europe is really ready for a kind of wartime leadership which is actually something i wrote an article about this morning in medium.com so making a bit of uh, i'm always promoting your book i'm promoting now <laughs> medium.com uh, which uh, i normally write on substack but uh i increasingly i if i have some extra stuff i i throw it on medium i'm checking that out a little bit uh so this morning i changed an article i wrote last night for substack i added a bit to it and put that on medium so those who don't follow me there please uh, please do uh, back read to you alistair read it yeah it's great yeah also, yeah, also, among other repercussions in Britain, we're seeing some calls to relax the, the goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions in, by 2050 that has been um, agreed by um, pretty much all parties as part of the Paris Agreement in the UK. Britain was the first G7 nation to adopt the goal of net zero which has by 2050, which has become sort of the 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 whole the, the 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 talisman for pretty much every major economy to to be able to do it by 2050, um, uh, but you know there's rumblings that no that's too ambitious and some some people are calling for for resumption of fracking um, to to uh, under the UK despite a 2019 moratorium. The most sort of uh, outspoken of this is Nigel Farage, who was a, a right wing populist who. <laughs> Um, successfully led the Brexit party that um, uh, won a referendum in 2016 that led to Britain's departure from the European Union. Um, he now wants a new referendum about the whole idea of net zero. Um, unfortunately, Farage's track record um, means you have to take, pay attention to him, even though he's um, out there on a fringe on a lot of issues. Um, he wrote in the right-wing tabloid, the Mail on Sunday, that net zero is net stupid, um, portraying a greener future as too costly and trotting out arguments that the UK only produces 1% of emissions, while China um, is building scores of new coal plants every year. You know, this, this, this argument that, oh, my country only produces, and you can pretty much fill in any country in the world, only my country X only produces X percent yeah. of global, you know, greenhouse gases, whether it's 1% or 5% or 10% or 15% as it is in the United States. 
it sounds like you know that's a get out of jail card for everybody because it's not our we're not causing it when of course everybody yeah. is yeah you know so yeah exactly so you know he wrote that the net zero zealots are the same elitists who sneered at brexit and don't have to worry about paying their gas bills you know nigel farage is the sort of person who can see a populist bandwagon when he can and jump on it and lead it very very fast down a very steep and dangerous hill which is as he's shown in the past and um we have to we certainly have to keep an eye on this um this uh, this questioning of net zero and just hope that the politicians have the courage to stay the course yeah i was i was like what is now maybe two years ago i was just outside the european parliament i was sitting in a cafe having having lunch there with some people and he was sitting on the table next to me and i thought okay shall i tell this guy what i think of him and his ideas <laughs> his uh, probably wife, too right? many people already <laughs> did so let him have his lunch <laughs> yes. and uh and hopefully choking it and yeah. um it is uh, i mean of course what he's saying is it's the same like paying tax you know i i pay my contribution to the the all the tax income of the Netherlands is probably 0.00001%. So I could say, if I don't pay my tax, uh, the Dutch government still gets in enough money. So therefore, I don't have to pay tax because nobody will see the difference. Um, so that's, that would be a strong argument uh, for Farage to rally against uh, paying paying taxation. I think he should first start paying the 350 million per week to the NHS because they badly need it. Uh, that was promised. And uh, there were all these other Brexit promises and not one single one of them uh, was, uh, was kept, nor by his ridiculous party, nor by uh, the... Uh, the British um, uh, conservatives in the politics. So it's, uh, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things they still have to do. Um, where are we? So, yeah. Gosh, we spoke already 45 minutes. We still got yeah. Shackleton. Shall we do okay. Shackleton? Let's do quickly do Shackleton as the last one. <laughs> My this hero. The, your hero, I know. So I, I've been looking this up. It's kind of a positive story because we heard how the wreck of the endurance ship owned and sailed by Ernest Shackleton it sank in 1907 where it was crushed by the ice on a trip to Antarctica it was found on the seabed um, a few weeks ago in these extraordinary photographs but what's got less attention um, are the ghostly animals that have taken over the ship the new crew of the of the endurance uh, resting on the seabed at a depth of 3,000 meters and so, so some of these Antarctic scientists, uh, biologists, marine scientists, um, have been poring over the photos of the wreck and spotting all sorts of creatures that are now the crew. You know, the, the pirates have taken over. Um, Hugh Griffiths of the British Antarctic Survey has got an amazing Twitter um, uh, account where he's, he's, he's listed some of these creatures you know, um, he's spotted sea anemones, starfish, sea stars, maybe corals and glass sponges all over the place here. One of his favorites was a, a yellow sea lily that he says this type of creature um, dates back 480 million years, you know, long before most of the dinosaurs um, walked, the, walked, the, uh, walked the earth. Yeah, that is that is amazing. Yeah, I saw, I saw the one on... Uh... On, on uh, the crab that he found and uh, that is uh, they had never found a crab uh, in in that region of the world ever before and yeah i remember also the picture of that sea lily 480 million years that is that is really like a long time ago we've been around only uh 200,000 years or so so do it multiply by five then you have one million and then you multiply by what is it 480 million years ago so that is really really far back and they're still growing there the ship looks pristine like it just sailed yesterday it's in such good shape it is it's actually standing upright it's 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 proudly still sailing as 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 a kind of um uh ghost ship that's still sailing around and it's uh yeah it's 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 amazing and and it's um uh writing about leadership in wartime as i did this morning i saw that if i would have had more time i would have written more about shackleton because 
That's typically an example. Shackleton in normal life, when he was up in London, he made a mess of his life. You know, his finances were never in order. It was mostly fault of his brother, but sometimes he himself was not very good in arranging that. Nor was his marriage very stable, I believe. And and uh, there were he, he was not very successful there. But when when you were when you were with Shackleton. In um, in 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 brutal places like like the Antarctic, he was a leader who could take quick decisions and the right decisions. Uh, he had a, a very small team of you know guys like like uh, Worsley and Frank Wild around him to advise him on on whom he relied, and he managed to keep everybody all those uh, this this crew of 28 uh, people he kept all of them alive in against all odds in in uh, in an amazing trip um until they got back in europe and they were shot to pieces most of them in the, in the first world war which was a very bad ending of of a really heroic uh, book um there's even a book written about uh, the management style of shackleton uh, by two women that really researched every decision he ever took, and and uh, they they presented as an expiring example uh, for managers. Of course, the point is that in a normal management culture in your office, you are not in the Antarctic. Uh, you have to find consensus between all kinds of people and people that have a bit of headache. You have a talk with them and give them a cup of coffee and everything. That is not the style of Shackleton, uh, nor do you want a Shackleton leadership, sh- leadership style in the, in your office. Um, but yeah, this research is amazing. So may- maybe we should do one uh, fully dedicated on uh, on Shackleton and this uh, search for uh, the endurance. I see that Joshua is already raising his hand for for a long time. So uh, shall we yeah. shall we do a question here? I, I see, said we'll do it towards yeah. the end. Hi, Hi Joshua. Joshua. Yes, uh, thank you for letting me join. And I think it's really fitting that three white men are talking about Shackleton right now uh, while we're facing uh, Mother Nature and her fury. Um, anyway, yeah. I bring up Brian Walsh and his book, End of Times. He was a reporter for Time and Bloomberg, I believe. He kind of looked at all of the different conflicting potential disasters we're facing over the next coming decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, and the intersectionality was on climate change through many of those, um, which you guys are probably aware of. Um, so that's kind of the bad news. If you guys look at that book, I sent it to Alex. Um, the second thing I'd like to just throw out there to the audience on a good news perspective in regards to sea level rise and salt water is that uh, nuclear powered, um, I don't know about submarines, but I know ships use desalination. And uh, so does the Israeli government use desalinization, desalination, so essentially taking seawater and turning it into not seawater so that you can water crops and such. Um, obviously a long-term thing, but think about that on other planets when we're rebuilding civilizations or maybe when we do it here. And what do we do that out of? It certainly can't be out of concrete or oil and petroleum-based materials. Yeah, wow. Um that's uh that's that's uh, quite a tough one. Um let me think so on 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 your first point, uh yeah, I'm very with very much with you on on all these um these compounding risks where climate is really a pivotal one. It is not it's certainly not the only one. There's 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 a lot of them. I think another bad one which may not be mentioned specifically so in the book is governance, governance in general. I think that if you look at all the systems in the world from from take some extremes like like whatever North Korea all the way to a well functioning country like like Norway or Sweden and and any variety that you have in between whether it's left wing or right wing whether it's a dictatorship or a democracy or or any kind of form not one of these systems has actually proven capable of taking care of something like for, for a, a long-term existential challenge like uh, climate change. Of course, some countries are doing it much better than other countries, but not one country is really capable of saying, okay, this is a, a global long-time problem.
problem that is moving slowly, of which we don't know where it will hit next, but we know that it will increase uh, in frequency and in severity. Um, uh, the actions that you take in one country will impact another country. Normally, what we do in the north will impact countries in the south uh, more. Um, but not one country has really found a way of dealing with it, nor do I have like a straight answer role, like, like, hey, guys, this is the way uh, you should do it, apart from some obvious ones, like um, you, you, you need a long-term perspective, you need international cooperation, you need to listen to the scientists, um, etc. And then, so climate is a big one, but it is getting worse because uh, climate does impact security. As I said, I worked a lot on that in, 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 in the past 15, 20 years. Um, as we see these days, uh, security also impacts uh, climate change. One of the ways it does is by uh, taking away the attention that it needs to get from uh, world leaders. A top priority should now be COP27. Probably if you Google for it, you'll see that nobody in the past days wrote a word about COP27 in Egypt, uh, which should have been uh, a priority. And then there's, of course, there's biodiversity, there's the plastic pollution in the oceans, um, and then uh, there is uh, things like uh, the multilateral system of diplomacy that is, is falling apart, uh, disrespect for, for international law, um, issues like rising inequality uh, in the world between countries, but also within countries. Um, take the United States, for instance, a very high level of of, of inequality, and it is... Uh, rising a lot if you compare it to, let's say, uh, the Eisenhower days in the 1950s. And I'm deliberately mentioning Eisenhower here because he is not known as some kind of left-wing softy. Uh, I mean, this was uh, the Republican uh, general that that won the Second World War for us. Uh, but in those days, you know, people with a high income, they paid 90, 90% tax. Nowadays, a lot of them pay zero uh, so a uh, massive increase in inequality that is a, a cause for, for a lot of problems. And in, in general, governance is not really, really getting better. Worldwide, the quality of democracies is getting less. Um, so uh, there, there's uh, democracies have been rising from 1941. There were only 11 democracies in the world. By 2000, uh, we had something like 116 democracies. But now if you look at the quality as well as the quantity of the democracies, uh, it's certainly not rising. And there's a lot to say that they're actually uh, getting getting less, including in the U.S., where democracy is, 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 um, is, is under threat. Um, so all these crises, they all stack up. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of it. Um, uh, a, a lot of these crises make other crises uh, worse. So it's, it's a very worrying trend. What do you think, Alistair? Yeah, indeed, good points. Um, thanks, Joshua. I mean, I'll look out for Brian Walsh's book as well. Um, what you were saying about desalination, I remember actually I went on a, a Soviet-era icebreaker, nuclear-powered icebreaker up in Murmansk one time as part of a reporting trip. This thing had been built in Finland and then was sliced in half, taken down to Leningrad where they put in a nuclear reactor, um, which I guess <laughs> was uh, running the desalination um, activities on the boat. Of course, you know, desalination means that places like around the Middle East where it's impossible to grow anything because it's too hot um, and uh, for much of the time and, and it's just simply too hot to, to live there you can you can desalination plants there have, have made those places livable you can have grass you can water the grass with desalination with clean water but it comes at an enormous price normally because you've got uh, these places are run on natural gas and if you look at the world rankings of per capita greenhouse gas emissions places like Qatar and the United Arab yeah. Emirates um, are top of the list way ahead of the United States even so um, yeah, if we can run desalination plants on some form of renewable energies, um, that'll be wonderful. Yeah, yeah, true. I see uh, uh, two two remarks here. First of all, we have a chat function since last week. I see that Evelyn and uh, Sue are using that already. 
which on your screen you have, how do I say that? You somewhere see news, the bigger picture, and then you have this like little hat on the left. But if you go to the right, you see these text balloons. And there you can message to each other. And uh, Sue believes that uh, I should have spoken uh, to Farage and told him what I think of him, which yes. would have taken quite a bit of time and would have uh, ruined his lunch. Um, thanks, Sue. You're so right. And, um, and Evelyn is saying that the chat function is available on Android. And Evelyn is waiting in line to say something. So, hi, Evelyn. Please Join us, or were you just going to say that the chat function is working? Uh, no, <laughs> but um, it, <laughs> I'm happy that you well, Anyway, I have three um, short points. Uh, first, happy Substack anniversary, Alex. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, that's well true. Done. One year ago, oh, I yeah, sent out right. my very first news, uh, Substack newsletter. Yeah. Thank yeah, you, Evelyn. No, I'm, I'm good with dates, not with names. I'm glad your names are on the screen so I don't forget them. But anyway, dates I can do. And um, I wanted to say this last time, but my app froze. So everybody should, well, everybody should read Alex's newsletter, obviously. And also Alistair's book, because I'm really, I'm, I'm like the last few pages. I'm on the last few pages now. I was going to finish it oh, on wow. the train, but I got distracted. And I was wondering if you could maybe do a Q&A on that, because I have some Thank views. You. Yeah. <laughs> we so, can do that. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, of course. It's a good I'm idea. I'm happy, I'm happy to send them in a, a, ahead of time, you know, my questions and stuff. That would be wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so um, much. And good I'm idea. So glad you got through it as well. That's shall we, shall we do that next week you. on Thursday at the, the uh, same time, same place uh, in this broadcast, and we just make your book the the central theme. <laughs> Some of the theme, yeah. Why not? That'd be great. Yeah, we can Thank do you. that. That's Thank wonderful. You. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the third one was I. I read something. There was a tweet by I can't remember who, but it was about Swiss airline or Swiss, the airline, and it talked about solar fuels, and I had not heard about about that, or not not much, anyway, so I went to their um, website, and it sounds, it almost sounds too good to be true, but I only spent like five minutes on it, so I don't know, but um, I was wondering if you guys know more about solar fuels, and if that could be a way to go. I think that's yeah, Alistair's I field. I think, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I th yeah, I'm just looking it up, actually. Make Swiss the first airline in the world to use sun-to-liquid fuel, it says, doesn't it? Yeah, um, exactly. The process de devised by Synhelion, the company uses concentrated sunlight to produce carbon-neutral kerosene. Okay. Um, that's beyond my technical knowledge to know how you do that, but... Um, Wow, if you could produce some, um, turn sunlight into fuel, that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? But then still, yeah. when you burn it, you still produce CO2, of course. Well, you could say you, you constructed it from CO2, um, so you, you then bring it back to CO2. I, I kind of like the idea. Of course, in its basics is any kind of carbo carbohydrogen molecule uh contains energy and then if you if you do a reaction with uh, oxygen uh, it 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 falls apart and it it releases energy uh, so in in theory you can you can turn the process around so if you if you add energy to it and and control the process in the right way you can construct bigger molecules of carbon hydrons that that contain that energy but I'm the last person in the world looking at the the the, uh, the chemistry results I had at high school. I'm the last person in the world you should ask this <laughs> this stuff to. Uh, but it's a fascinating fascinating subject. Yeah, that is a really interesting one. Yeah, yeah. I see. It says yeah. that the, they use concentrated solar heat to manufacture syngas, which can then be synthesized into kerosene. Yeah, yeah. standard industrial processes. But again. Yeah. 
I didn't do very well in my chemistry exams either. Uh, because I can imagine that uh, fuel is heavy, so you and and planes can't be heavy, of course. So you need a kind of fuel that you use on an airplane that is as as concentrated as as much as possible, and then uh, so you you. It, uh, I can imagine that it's not possible to to fly a huge Boeing on normal petrol that you throw in your car. So you you, you really need the best the best quality. Um, so I can yeah, it 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 sounds fascinating and and a bit of science fiction, but not completely unrealistic. Um, yeah, okay, something we should we dive should into in one of the other yeah. shows. We Indeed. must maybe invite uh, the, the 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 person. Uh, the man or woman that has invented uh, this uh, this technology yeah they're swiss so if you need somebody to talk to talk them into it i'm happy to to do that so we got our contact on the ground in switzerland yeah <laughs> thanks evelyn so that would, that would be interesting actually yeah 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 wow fascinating fascinating stuff thanks evelyn yeah thank you yeah. guys Okay. Any other any other questions of uh, the people that are that are still listening? We still got eight people with us, which is uh, which is which is wonderful. Um, because looking at the clock, we're already this is already more than an hour. So um, I'm, I'm amazed that you guys stay with us all the time. We must do something well. <laughs> yes, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So, um, oh, and at the moment I said that somebody left us, and um, uh, let's see. I think we're yeah we're running towards the end. Um, I have nothing else planned for this week. I mean, the regular shows are on Monday and Thursday uh, on Monday at eleven o'clock Eastern time with Vanessa, and Thursday at. Uh, 3 o'clock, 3 p.m. Uh, with Alistair. Um, next week, we know already what we're going to talk about, which is Alistair's book, which I can really <laughs> recommend uh, to everyone. Um, the Great Melt. It's yeah, the Great you. Melt. The ice is melting and the sea levels are rising, and that will have a lot of uh, negative impacts all over the world. And it's really good to be aware of all that, especially in days when people are focused on all kinds of other things, but we cannot just let that go and not do anything until the problem gets uh, gets too high. I might do in the next few days uh, a few uh, just, just kind of one-off monologues, as I normally do towards the end of the week. Uh, sometimes in the weekend, I just feel like it and put the microphone on. And it's nice that I saw most of you actually um, have joined some of those uh, as well they're normally less prepared than these more spontaneous and i, I hope to still make sense somehow um that's about it anything else alistair from your side no, i think that's that's been great thanks alex yeah um, okay. another grim week but um some yeah. uplifting stories some yeah we were a bit uplifting uplifting towards the end we're, we're getting yeah. better at this yeah. yeah. Okay, guys. So Thanks we'll uh, we'll, we'll stop everybody. here. Thanks a lot for uh, for the clapping and for uh, and and for supporting. And oh, and do check out uh, medium.com and uh, see if you can uh, you can find my stuff there. So um, I could use some clapping there too because that's really a startup uh, startup exercise. I actually, I I earned sixteen cents uh, this week. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, there's not a get, ri get rich quick scheme, but it's uh, it's interesting. Okay, guys, um, letting you go. Thanks so much. Bye, Thanks. bye, everyone. Bye.